Monday to Friday, Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. Coming up, we're going to be chatting to the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Good morning to you. Good to have you on the show. Morning, Kino. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Very, very good. What have you been up to? Well, much the usual. I mean, it's, you know, the the coronavirus continues to dominate my life, as you can imagine. Uh, So, in fact, this week we've been doing a little bit of an expose on where this coronavirus came from. We thought we would dig into the science, dig into the literature and try to discover its origins. And uh, that's what we've been doing. And uh, we're going to put together a documentary that's going to come out next week on on the radio and on the Internet. And uh, we've we've talked to people all over the world, actually, about this and um, still don't have the answer, of course. But we've we've got some, I think, some clear directions of travel, which will make it clear to people where this came from, how it came to be, what the mechanisms are, etc. Now, I've got this question from a young man called Devon. Let's take a listen to it. Hi, Dr. Smith. My name is Devon, and I would like to know why some sounds, like when my knife scraped across my dinner plate, make me shiver all over. That's a cute question. And they've also sent us the sound itself. Oh, let's hear it. Oh, <laughs> what a great way to start the show, uh, Chris. Yeah. And and when you're taking your fingers and you scratch it over a chalkboard, there's just so many other things that 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 even when you see someone getting kicked in the kahunas as a male, you end up going, oh, um, why in the world does the body react that way? First of all, where does the sound come from? The sound comes from the knife and the fork scraping across the plate's surface, obviously. It's a sound, therefore it's a vibration. And what's happening is that the blade, the sharp edge of the knife, or the tines of the fork, are sticking and slipping, sticking and slipping across the slightly rough surface of the glaze on the plate. And that's creating very high-frequency vibrations. Those vibrations, because the plate's a big surface, it's very well mechanically coupled to the air. So it's like a big loudspeaker. It moves those vibrations out of the plate surface into the air with quite high efficiency and they then travel to your ears. Devon's question, of course, is, well, why on earth does that make me shiver and shudder? And not just me as the person making the sound, all the people around the room. And the reason for this is uh, that we, well, we don't know for sure, but people have done experiments on this and it looks like there's a specific range of frequencies which, when this happens, they activate your amygdala in your brain The amygdala is your fear centre. So what we think is happening is that certain frequencies presented to the auditory system, your hearing system, then activate the fear centre in your brain. And we think that happens because the frequencies that just happen to be coming off that plate or just happen to be made when someone scratches their fingernails down a blackboard, you know, the same sort of sound. Those are the same sorts of frequencies at a high pitch that an individual who is screaming might make that a baby who's crying might make, and that an animal in distress might make. And so we think that there's this primitive pathway in our brain that tunes us into danger sounds and alerts us, gets our attention, hijacks your attention, makes you pay attention, so that you can look out for danger and potentially help someone else who's in danger. And it just so happens that your your knife on your plate, your fork on your plate, your fingers going down the blackboard maps onto the same range of frequencies so they plug into the same pathway in your brain and elicit that danger response. And that was a fabulous question from young Devon Hong. So thank you very much for that, Devon. 
Uh, at least I'll be able to explain it and also rationalise for my own self. When and, and accompanied by sound effects, so he gets extra yeah. points for not just sending in a fantastic I, question, but also sending in the evidence, <laughs> and, and then we can play it. it. So <laughs> let's have more of that, please. Yes, thank you. I think Devon has set the bar. The bar has been raised. It's up to you to try and beat that. Now, let's go to Clive. Uh, Clive is in Swellendam. Hi there, Clive. Good day. Hi, good morning, good morning. I don't think I'm going to, to, to reach that far. <laughs> <laughs> However, I, it's a question I've been dying to ask Chris for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And that is, when I was growing up, my mum always used to say, don't suntan in the winter sun. You can suntan in the sun and summer sun, but winter sun is not a good thing to do. Um, any comments on it? just a myth or what is that, Chris? Yeah, it sounds like a myth, Clive. Uh, I, I, don't, yeah. I can't think off the top of my head why that would be true. If you think about the distinction between summer and winter, the Earth is at an angle, it's tilted, 23.5 degrees, give or take. And this means that in summertime, the surface of the Earth that is tilted towards the sun, a bigger surface of, air of, the, of the Earth is tilted towards the sun, therefore that patch of Earth gets sun for longer, which is why you have warmer weather in summer. And in wintertime, it's tilted away. Therefore, that patch of the Earth's surface gets illuminated for less time. So therefore, the weather is overall colder in winter. But the distance difference between when the Earth is tilted towards the sun versus away from the sun, given how many millions of kilometres away that the sun is anyway, it's really inconsequential. So it is, it is not that. The sun is a bit higher in the sky in summertime than wintertime and therefore the amount of atmosphere the sunlight is coming through in summertime is a bit less and therefore the intensity of the ultraviolet in summer is going to be a bit higher but on average it's not going to make a great difference in terms of the composition of the ultraviolet that's coming through the atmosphere because the UVC which is a really short wavelength UV won't get through at all the UVB which can be more powerful and more damaging to your skin will get through a, a little bit less and not come, much comes through anyway and the UVA is still going to come through so if it's sunny in winter then you're still you're still going to get UVA exposure and potentially get uh, some some sunburn and and also make some vitamin D so i don't think there's really any really good grounds for saying to people there's a distinction between sunbathing in summer and winter other than you might look a bit mad if you're in your swimming costume uh, sunning yourself in the middle of winter <laughs> well it depends on your swimming costume um, I mean could, could it I mean I'll ask you a, a, a stupid question I mean you asked the clever one Clive I'll ask the stupid one isn't it maybe because in winter you think you can spend time in the sun for a longer period because it's cooler yeah, it's a good idea, Mate. and it's a good suggestion, uh, because the, the colder air means that you're more likely to to spend more time exposed. And this is why people often get sunburned on their skiing holidays, because they, they've had a long period of time without much sun exposure, because they've been indoors in the winter weather, and therefore their skin, if they can, has lost its melanin tone. So white skin yep. becomes much whiter in winter. And then people go jetting off on their skiing holiday and you get a double whammy of ultraviolet on your skiing holiday because you get the incident radiation coming down from the sky. You're also at higher altitude, a bit like Joe Berg. But then you've also got the reflection off the sun surface. So if you off the snow surface, because snow is white, because it's reflecting all the wavelengths of light. And if you've already got very 
very under-melanized skin because it's winter time, the dose into your skin is therefore going to be higher. So that, that is potentially a good point. You have a higher likelihood of getting burned if you already have paler skin because you've already been underexposed to UV. So maybe maybe uh, I was assuming that Clive would be a, a sun worshipper all year round. <laughs> and, and in fact, no, it's coming in peaks and troughs. But that's a good suggestion, Kino, yeah. Okay, great. Clive, thank you very much for asking it. Another one here. Dear Dr. Chris, why does the President of the United States skin have an orange tint to it? I'm kidding. I put that one in there. Um, <laughs> I think it's called spray tan. But uh, are, are people, do, do some people actually have orange skins? I mean, is that is that just part of the makeup? Because some, like, if one looks at his skin, it seems to be more orange than most other people's. Well, you you can have orange skin if you eat too many carrots. And this is because carrots contain beta-carotene, hence they're called carrots. And beta-carotene is a fat-soluble orange molecule, which is two vitamin A molecules stuck together. It's not toxic because it's not active vitamin A, because it's two molecules stuck together. And two molecules are not active until they get broken down in the body into individual molecules. So if you eat too many carrots, what your body does with the beta-carotene is to store it in fat. And as you have a lot of fat under your skin then you can store lots of beta-carotene in your skin and you will go orange. And your eyes will go orange, your skin will go orange, and you will only un-orange yourself as you break down the beta-carotene and use it, which mm. is what happens slowly. The other reason okay. people might take on an orangey-yellowish tinge is if they have a liver problem, because your liver re removes from your body bilirubin. Bilirubin is a breakdown product of, of haemoglobin, which yeah. is the molecule in your blood cells that carry oxygen. And you have to get rid of that by breaking down the, the bilirubin molecule and then chucking yeah. it out into the bowels from the liver. And if you have a liver problem, the bilirubin spills over into your bloodstream and then goes into your fat cells as well. And this will make a person with, with a liver problem look yellow, and we call that jaundice. I don't think President Trump has that. I think uh, because the orange tone does change from day to day, it can't be carrots either, because the half-life of beta-carotene in the body is quite long. So I'm going with the cosmetic orange. Spray. Yeah. Spray, spray tan. Okay. Alan in Claremont, good morning. Good morning. Hi. After talking about the sun, I've got a question about the moon. When one looks at a new moon, you start off with a very small crescent moon, and the moon slowly waxes and waxes and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, you've got a full moon. Now, I can understand having a chunk, a, a, a concave piece out of the moon. But I don't understand when sometimes one looks at the moon, it looks almost oval-shaped, almost like a, a big, fat rugby ball. How can that? I don't see how a shadow can make a moon look that shape. I'm going to hang up and I'm going to listen on the radio. Okay, Alan, I'll give you an opportunity to put the phone down, run to the radio, turn up the volume, and Chris, the floor is yours. Okay. The, the reason we see the moon illuminated in the sky, it's a myth that this is a shadow. Because if you look at the shape of the illuminated bit on the moon you'll see that actually the curve is not as though the Earth is covering the moon. It's it's the lit bit that has the shadow, that has the nice arc on it f from the source. So it's actually not the Earth's shadow which is accounting for the shape of the moon. It is the amount of the moon's surface which is being illuminated by the sun. Remember that the moon goes around in a big circle around the Earth. The Earth uh, is orbited by the moon and the moon takes 28 days give or take to go from its starting position all the way around its orbit of the earth and back to where it started on various points around that journey 
different parts of the surface of the moon will be seeing the sun. And if they're seeing the sun, they're, they're reflecting light from the sun and they're reflecting it down to us here on the Earth's surface. And you can do the experiment yourself. If you stand a football on, on, on the ground in the dark and you walk around with a torch and you shine a torch onto the front surface of the moon or you have someone else illuminate different parts of the of the moon the football with the torch and you look which bits are lit up for you as the observer you'll see that as they walk in a big circle around around the football shining the torch onto it different bits of it light up in the same way that our moon does and when we have a new moon the moon is completely invisible to us to us and that's because the sun is illuminating the side of the moon that faces the sun but it's the opposite side of the moon to that facing the earth so we see darkness we can't see the moon but as the moon moves around on its orbit the sun is illuminating progressively more of the moon's surface so we see more lit up and then as it gets round so that there's sun earth moon you've then got the full surface of the moon being illuminated and we see a full moon and then the reverse effect starts to kick in so as as the moon waxes it's getting bigger or wanes it's shrinking again going back towards its new moon the invisible moon then there's a little bit of an optical illusion kicks in in your brain as well because your brain sees the lit part and then it fills in what should be there because your brain knows that the moon's a ball and so it fills in what the rest of the picture should look like a bit so it fools you into almost it's almost an illusion the shape of the moon you can see something that isn't there because your brain's interpreting what it can see and what is lit up and working out what should be there and our brain is doing this for us all the time to fill in the gaps in our visual world excellent Thank you for the question. Let's go to Ned. Ned's in Athlone. Hi, Ned. Good morning, Dr. Chris. Good morning, Kino. Good morning, the staff of 567. Morning, sir. Um, good morning. Dr. Chris, tell me, uh, you, you know, a cobra and various poisonous snakes. If uh, another animal bites them and eats them, why don't those animals get affected? Uh, if a snake bites a human person, he'll get conked out straight away. Yep. Okay. Good question, Ned. The reason is that the venom in creatures like snakes, also scorpions and spiders, those venoms are mixtures or cocktails of proteins. Proteins are fragile molecules, which often, and in order for them to be active, they have to be injected into the body. They have to get into the bloodstream and then they target various structures. These proteins are sticky molecules that will go and find a target and bind to it and either block it or activate it. Many of them, to achieve a very rapid effect, target the nervous system because snakes don't have very good vision and they can't move that fast for very long. So the way that they catch their prey is that they bite it, inject it with an enormous dose of the venom and then very quickly these very fast-acting venoms will deactivate the nervous system of the prey animal and the snake can then sniff out where the animal has pretty quickly keeled over and died and then it can eat it with in safety but because those venoms are proteins they if they go in through the mouth then they will be broken down by digestive juices this is the same reason that a person with diabetes has to inject themselves with insulin insulin's a protein and if you eat insulin it would be broken down so you have to inject it snakes spiders scorpions other sort of stinging animals that use a venom based on proteins have to inject them into you for that reason. So if another animal came along and ate a snake, it would be eating the venom 
and the venom would be deactivated in the digestive tract of the animal. If a snake bit itself, it's perfectly possible that it could die of its own venom. And if a snake bit another snake, it's possible that that venom could could kill the victim snake or other creature. So it's not a given that just because you've got venom, you're immune to venom. And if you eat venom, you will be able to break down venom. But if the venom gets into your body, not via your digestive tract, so those proteins do their job intact, that's when it's dangerous. Okay, great. Moving on to some of the voice notes that you said. We had a lot of calls coming in, but let's listen to some of those voice notes. This is a question for the naked scientist. I would like to know, has man really been to the moon? I know there's been so many debates, yes or no. But if you look at the Van Adams belt that surrounds the Earth, that ring of radiation, how could they get through that in the 60s without frying themselves to death? And then secondly, why have we not been back since? If we can get to the moon, why has man not been landing on the moon regularly doing experiments and testing? Is there a reason for that? Thanks. Chris? Yeah, well, we, ha- we have uh, been to the moon, yes. And the evidence is unequivocal that we've, we've been to the moon. It's just a good story, isn't it? Oh, I don't think they really went. We did, we, did, we the royal we, we did go to the moon. And you can see the landing sites. There was a mission in 2003, Smart One, which put a, an iron drive-driven craft out into lunar orbit to study the moon. And as that craft came to the end of its mission, they directed its flight path over some of the Apollo sites and took photographs. And you can see some of the infrastructure there on the surface of the moon still there from the Apollo missions. So we know the guys went there. We know that they um, left materials there that we can still see to this day. One of the things they left behind is also a mirror. There's a mirror on the Earth's surface which is bouncing a laser beam from the Earth which is sent from the Earth to the Moon and back to the Earth every day. And that's how we know, for instance, that the Moon is moving about two centimetres further away from the Earth every year. And this is because the Moon is robbing us of a little bit of our rotational energy, which is giving the Moon some energy, so it's moving to a, a different orbit. So we, we know, based on, on observed evidence, that people did go to the Moon. Why haven't people been back so often since? Simple answer, very expensive. For what gain? We'd love to be knocking around on various planets and and bodies out in the solar system, but it's incredibly dangerous and incredibly expensive. And you have to ask, is that the best use of resources at this time? We are planning to be going back to the moon very soon, actually. There is a lunar gateway project, which is what was due to be scheduled for next year. I'm not sure what the timeline is now because of COVID, but this will build a space station orbiting the moon, this will act as a jumping off point for missions to and from the moon down to the Earth's surface and back again so people can study the moon in more detail and perhaps with the idea of establishing some kind of settlement on the moon. But that is uh, an, an international initiative, the European Space Agency very much involved in that and it's due to actually be starting as soon as next year, which is an extraordinary prospect. So we may be going back to the moon sooner than you had thought. Okay, we received a call from Carl in California, IA, otherwise known as California. Carl, good morning. Bless you, sir. Hello. Hi. My question is about electricity. Where is the electricity before it becomes the power that it is? Before it goes into the turbine, where is the electricity? I just cannot work it out. Thank you, sir. Morning, okay. Carl. Uh, uh, or, yes, very early morning for you, Carl. If you're in California, then it's about one o'clock in the morning. Yep. But anyway, good morning to you. The answer is electricity is the flow of electrons, which are the negatively charged particles around atoms. And the energy that is the electricity is actually in 
the coal that you burn to produce the electricity or the oil or the gas or the wind or the sun, the photons that are hitting the solar panel. They have energy and the energy is converted or transduced into a flow of electrons. So you use the energy that's in the, the power source to then start electrons moving and you're giving the electrons potential. They have electrical potential and as they move around a circuit, they release that potential they go from a high potential to a low potential, giving out energy in the process. So the electricity always exists in the sense that it is merely electrons, but what you're doing is giving the electrons a push and they're able to do some work because they're moving around your circuit. And as they move around your circuit, they surrender the energy you put into them back, back into whatever you're using the electricity to do, whether that's turn a light on, drive a fan to cool a room um, or, or make a radio program. Chris, thank you for that. And we have uh, maybe time for one or two, but let's just see how the insomnia one goes first. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Kino. Uh, a question, please, Chris. Um, what causes insomnia and can it be rectified without taking medication? Thank you, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Chris? Well, the answer is insomnia is the inability to fall asleep or the inability to stay asleep for a, a reasonable length of time that gives a person a restoring night's sleep. The reasons can be manifold and the most common one is people who have anxieties, people who are worried about something, go to bed with something on their mind and when you go to bed at night, all the other stimuli, the things that keep you busy during the day, news to watch, television to watch, things to read, things to do, shopping, cleaning, whatever, they're all taken away. So the only thing left for you to do is to ruminate on things that you should be doing, should have done, might have to do in the future, things that might happen, things that might not happen. And these things go around like a vicious spiral, getting more and more uh, worrisome because you obsess about them at night. And this keeps people up. That's one reason. Another reason is people can be in pain or have other medical conditions that mean that it's impossible for them to get comfortable and they keep being woken up. Another reason is that people may have a bed sleeping partner who is a nightmare because they snore and there are people who, they're the snorer and they get a bad night's kip because they're snoring but then their poor bedfellow gets an even worse night's sleep because they keep being woken up. So that's another consideration. Other sorts of noises that go on all night and can keep people awake also disturb sleep. And then there are some interesting disorders which are unpleasant for the people who have them, but they're interesting to study because they can reveal to us how sleep works. There are studies, there are, there are disorders where people cannot get any sleep. And there's one genetic condition called fatal familial insomnia, which is what we call a prion disorder. It's an inherited condition and it's a degenerative brain condition. But one of the side effects of that is, and it's very rare, so people shouldn't worry that they've got that, but one of the side effects is that people lose the ability to, to get off to sleep the way to solve this is to actually be very disciplined about your sleep so always use your bedroom only for sleeping make a time to go to bed and get into the habit of getting up or going to bed at the right time and getting up at the right time establish a routine don't use screens late at night because screens especially lcd screens from mobile phones and things will wake you up they send a wake-up signal to the brain so have a, a screen-free hour or two before bed don't dazzle yourself with lots of bright lights. Turn the lights down a bit. Put yourself into a comfortable state of mind before you go to bed and put things to one side. Don't worry about them till the next day and get into that routine. And this can often help people to get a restful night's sleep. 
and don't ask yourself the question whether or not you're actually going to sleep tonight. One of my friends then... at medical school, Kino, used to say to me, he used to, when he was worried about exams and things and couldn't sleep, he would say, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to try and stay awake because it, reverse psychology kicks in and if you try and stay awake, immediately ah. you do the opposite and go to sleep. So that's another tip. Go to bed and instead like of saying, it. I'm going to go to sleep, I'm going to stay awake, I must stay awake, I must stay awake, and then you fall asleep. Chris, always a pleasure. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll chat to you next week. Thanks, Kino. Bye.